Radio Mano Papachango. Oh, yes. That's Funkadelic. That's a song called Mommy, What's a Funkadelic? That's just their uh, interesting little intro. I I was in a cafe the other day, and I saw they have uh, muffin tops. I'm sure you've seen muffin tops if you live in America. It's kind of just the good part of the muffin, you know, the crispy part on top. And uh, for some reason, that made me think of the fact that I really like songs that have a, an interesting opening, you know, cause the, like once you're into the song, you know, there are lots of ways you can go, but like, how do you get in there? What's the door? What's that first impression? Um, and I also get that with, with books. I love books where that first sentence or a short story or an essay or something where that first sentence just fucking knocks you on your ass, you know, where it's like, you read that first sentence or the first paragraph and you're like, holy shit, this is going to be good. You know, I like that. I don't know. That made me think of that. If you will suck my soul, I will lick your funky emotions. That's a pretty interesting way to begin a song. You got to admit. Maybe I'll play you a couple others. I'll just uh, I'll just pause this and I'll go through my iTunes collection and see what I come up with. This is not in any sense, my absolute favorites. These are the ones that I came up with today, Sunday morning in 10 minutes. So stand by. I'm going to go peruse for some musical muffin tops. This morning, I don't want to work no more. I ain't working no more. 
Take out that modern day slavery. It's knocking on my front door. I don't fit in the corporate world, man. Get you a big fat sack of yeah, yo. Can't see my kids, can't see my wife. Can't see a way to control my dog on love. Hey, man, break it down for all these super tired pencils. I got hired at the dope spot. I'm an employee. Cooking crack like a black chef for your D. Got meth, speed. Whatever you need, zigzags come free with a bag of weed. If you want some shine, you gotta talk to her. Skinny black dude with the real long perm, laptop computers, rap CDs, Motorola phones, Sony color TVs. I got the porno taste in the back of the car. You get it free when you buy a hot VCR. Got gats and D's, car batteries, getting money with my folks on them hundreds. Cops ain't waiters, we don't tip them. Treat cars like women, take them home and strip them. Match the pink slips, get the smock inspection. Put an ad in the paper in the classified section. Cause I don't wanna work no more. Modern day slavery knocking on my front door. Can't see my kids, I can't see my wife. I can't see a way to control my own life. You must be crazy. I don't wanna work no more. Modern day slavery knocking on my front door. I can't see my kids, I can't see my wife. I can't see a way to control my damn life, motherfucker. I quit my job this morning. I don't wanna work no more. I can't be Afro man with a ball head. Modern day slave. It's knocking on my front door. Get you a big fat sack of yayo. Can't see my kids, can't see my wife. Can't see a way to control my dog on love. How you gonna write me up for insubordination? I'm not being insubordinate, motherfucker. Tell the neighborhood, watch, tell the neighborhood, listen, tell the neighborhood your big screen television missing. You blew in my hood, so I gotta come to you. Steal your car battery and sell it back to you. Then I come back, back just for kicks. Leave your car sitting on no big bricks. All I need now is some baskets, homes, cause my garage look just like AutoZone. I need a beaver. What you say, man? Cause it's a whole lot cheaper Got a cellular phone And you really ought to get it For a limited time Brother, the chip come with it So come to my house When your times is hard Just like Vegas in my backyard I keep my afro pick My khakis crease And my next door neighbors Calling up the police Cause I don't wanna work no more Modern day slavery Knocking on my front door I can't see my kids I can't see my wife I can't see a way to control my own life I said I don't wanna work no Them buy myself breakfast. I made eighty dollars in an hour. Mo. Hour. Mo. What the fuck? 
broke, I wanna get a job. Oh, so the yuppies, the guppies can cross their power. Pay my black ass five dollars an hour. And the fact is, after taxes, gotta live where the Mexicans and the blacks is, motherfucker. Crooked police, gangs, and Chuck Taylors. Well, I'm sleeping in fucking trucks and trailers. Three hundred dollars every two weeks from the suit and tie, penny pinching pencil neck geeks. Abraham Lincoln told me I was free, so I'ma walk to the counter and do what I wanna. While you at work, I'll be watching cable with your girl dancing naked on my new pool table. I don't wanna work no more. No. Modern day slavery knocking on my front door. No. Can't see my kids, uh. can't see my wife, uh. can't see a way to control. I'm like that. Ain't right. Right. I don't wanna work no more. So Modern day slavery knocking on my front door. So I can't see my kids, I can't see my. Hey man, I gotta sell like a twenty dollar rock. Hey y'all keep singing, I'll be right back. I quit my job this morning. Fuck McDonald's and Taco Bell. <clears throat> Afro Man. Sorry, I had to give you the whole muffin on that one. I, I, I just couldn't turn that one off. Uh, all right. That's Afro Man. Also, check out Mississippi. That's my favorite favorite song by Afro Man. It's incredible. Anyway, uh, before that was a little snippet of Lost Cause by Beck. I mean, the way Beck uses backwards music just pulls me into this extremely strange but also deeply familiar space this emotional space he does it uh, that's from um sea change i believe that song and uh his most recent record is a continuation of that same sort of mood uh morning phase i think it's called really beautiful stuff if you haven't listened to beck for a while if you remember him as the guy who did i'm a loser so why don't you kill me or uh, some of his other early stuff. He did like a Hispanic gangster kind of record. I forget what it was called. Um, Anyway, if you haven't listened to him for a while, check out uh, Sea Change in particular. Holy fuck, is that beautiful. Very mature, kind of sad, um, bluesy, but very, very deep and emotional. Before that was Jose Namorar uh, by a terrible Brazilian accent, I know, by um, Tribalistas. There's only one record, I believe, by Tribalistas. It's uh, three famous Brazilian musicians who collaborated on this one record. 
it's fantastic. It's like, you know, six of my favorite 50 songs are from that one record. Fantastic. If you like Brazilian music at all, check that out for sure. Before that was another Brazilian tune, Sao de Bem. Uh, before that, Lisanga, uh, African tune. Then, of course, we have the famous opening of Born Under Punches by Talking Heads. And Hey 19 by Steely Dan. Great song. Very funny. You've probably heard it a million times, but listen to the words next time. It's so ironic. It's about an older dude hooking up with a young woman and how she's super sexy, but he realizes that if he weren't high and drunk, uh, he wouldn't be able to hang with her at all because they just have nothing in common. She doesn't even know who Aretha Franklin is. That's how it begins. And then the chorus is one of those masterfully ironic choruses where they're singing... uh, the Cuervo Gold, the fine Colombian, make tonight a wonderful thing. Now that kind of sounds like, oh, that's cool. But then you realize that what he's really saying is without the tequila and the Coke, tonight would not be a wonderful thing. It's the fact that I'm high as shit that makes this a wonderful thing. And then the first opening was a song called Bubi Chen uh, by this um, Indonesian band, uh, actually, I, let me see. I can't remember what they're called right now. Bubi Chen Sabah Habas Mustafa. Yeah. And the Jugula All-Stars. They're pretty funky. I got a few tunes by them. Uh, extremely funky. So if you like any of those, check them out. I'll, uh, I'll put a link up on my site. ThatChrisRyan.com. Also, chrisryanphd.com, whichever you like. All right, so let's get to reading some of your cards and letters. Um, Actually, they're all emails. So here's one, a guy, very thoughtful guy. Of course, I'm not going to read all this, and I don't want to read anything that will make anything recognizable. But this is a guy, essentially who's in love with a woman, recently broke up with her. Uh, The relationship was very chaotic, tumultuous, lots of lies, lots of fighting, left me exhausted. He's uh, in his early 30s. She's in her late 20s. Uh, And the problem was that uh, she was on dating apps and lied to him about it. And then he found out that she was doing it. They made up and then... He found out she was doing it again and, you know, okay, dating apps. So in in other words, she's probably fucking other dudes or at least flirting with other dudes and thinking about fucking other dudes and making other dudes think about fucking her and all that. Okay. Um, The way he phrases it, it sounds like it was really the lying that bothered him. Um, When I discovered all the messages, I thought my heart was going to burst out of my chest I felt so cheated, so stupid, so hurt. We broke up that night. I haven't seen her since. Despite all that, he says, my heart is not filled with rage. I still love her for all the beautiful moments. And while I know we can't or shouldn't be back together, I miss the things that kept me in the relationship that are so unique. Uh, Which leads to what I wanted to ask you. I was thinking about the last point, the things I find unique in my ex that I didn't have in other relationships. And I wonder if, in fact, these are... I am a big determining factor for having them rather than it being an exclusive intrinsic quality of hers. 
Uh, he talks about how we project love and onto the people we love, and we think we'll never meet anyone like them, and we'll never love anyone the same. My mind plays tricks on me, despite my experience, and my heart sinks when I remember one of her witty, funny remarks, or how after three years I was still just as attracted to her and our self-sex life never got boring. And then I think, maybe I can have this again. Uh, yeah. Maybe when someone else comes along, I may have many of the ingredients to create that recipe again. Maybe, hopefully, what do you think? Well, okay, this remind, this makes me think of several things. One of them is that I spent most of my 20s going back and forth with a woman, uh, and largely in the same sort of situation. I was, She was the most passionate, sexy, intense, wild woman I had ever met, uh, and but she was also completely impossible for me to live with partly because she was so intense and wild and you know the the same furnace that created that generated that sexual passion and the intensity of the emotions that she had with me and that we shared also um generated a lot of a lot of problems you know live by the sword die by the sword that sort of thing right it, it there was an instability there. There was um, a sort of overreaction to things. There was um, a wildness and an, an, a lack of control, which, you know, could express itself as incredible abandon sexually. Or, you know, when she said she loved me, there wasn't a molecule in me that didn't believe her. Um. And when she said she'd love me forever, I knew that she felt that. Now, that was 30 years ago, obviously. Um, forever means something different from this distance than it did then. But she still loves me, and I still love her. So in that sense, she wasn't wrong. Uh, there is something timeless about that. There's there. I often think there are two types of infinity. There's this sort of linear infinity, this horizontal infinity that we normally imagine, you know, extending out into the future forever, extending back into the past forever. But there's also a vertical infinity. There's an infinity where your experience is so deep that time stops. And so it sounds counterintuitive, but for an instant, you experience infinity. Eternity in an instant. I think William Blake used that phrase in one of his poems. The universe in a grain of sand, eternity in an instant. Uh, so I do believe in vertical infinity. I do believe that when someone says, I will love you forever, they mean it. And it's true, even if a month or a year or a decade later, things have changed, as of course they will have. But there is something lasting and eternal in that intensity. And look, when I was in my 20s, that my whole life was about intensity. That's what I wanted. That's what I needed. That's that's what I was running around looking for everywhere. 
But you do get to a point, or at least I did, and this guy, as I said, is in his early 30s, and that's about when I sort of looked at things and said, you know, I think I could I could be happy with a little less intensity. Uh, I could be happy with something that's a little less exhausting, that takes... You know, you have so much energy in your 20s that it's, you don't think about being efficient. There's the, the old joke, uh, the old bull and the young bull are on a hill and they're looking down at this herd of cows and the young bull says, hey, let's run down there and fuck one of those cows. And the old bull says, let's walk down and fuck all of them. So it's about efficiency, right? Uh, it's about, uh, you know, you've got a certain amount of energy. You've got a certain amount of time. And if you're spending it all trying to maintain an out of control, always on the edge of, of disaster relationship, you're not going to get much else done in your life. And when you're 25, maybe you don't give a shit because you have so much energy. You can sleep two hours a night and fuck three hours a night and get up and go to work the next day and then go out and snort a bunch of coke and do acid and whatever else you're doing. And you can sort of get by. But you reach a certain age where you're like, Jesus, what the fuck am I doing here? You know, this isn't adding up to much. And uh, I'm just burning through all this energy and it's I'm not building anything with it. I'm not really helping anyone. I'm not even building a relationship that's probably going to last. I'm just, you know, living for the day, which, you know, carpe fucking diem on one level. But on another level, uh, relationships can be shelter. They can be protection. They can be comfort. They can be lasting. They can be um, an investment in a way. Uh, and sometimes these crazy, tumultuous, hyper-passionate relationships don't add up to much, especially if you don't have the essential honesty. So I guess what I want to say to this guy and to people who are in the same sort of position is, yeah, the passion's amazing, but a mistake that I made was in thinking that that you can't have one without the other. In other words, you can't have the passionate connection without the absolute insanity. Um, and I thought like, okay, if I want, if I want that, if I want the, you know, first part, I need to have the second part. It's actually not true. Uh, I discovered later in life that you can have a passionate connection with someone who, um, you know, isn't lying to you, who, who is, who you can trust. And in fact, as I've grown older or more mature or more, you know, balanced or whatever the fuck has happened, uh, that trust has become more important. And the sort of wild abandoned passion has become not less important, but I've realized that it's something that come that can come with trust. So, you know, maybe a woman is more reserved, more protected, more careful. That doesn't mean she's not just as passionate. It just means she's more careful. And honestly, I think a relationship, I, you know, I've come to see relationships as like you're on a long road trip with someone. I don't want to be on a road trip with someone, you know, who, who I don't trust behind the wheel. I want to be able to fall asleep and 
you know, be comfortable and relaxed and, and trust that she's got my back. She can handle whatever comes up. And, uh, and I want her to feel the same. So passion is great. Passion's fun. But when you're in your twenties, you can waste a lot of time and energy on that. And then you can get stuck in it because you think the only way to get it is in this kind of unstable, crazy relationship. That's not actually the truth. Um, so yeah, my feeling, uh, you know, he's not really asking for advice so much, but, um, yeah, I do think that you are, as he says, am I the determining factor in these things rather than, you know, my finding these things in this woman because they exist in her? Yes, but this woman's attracted to you because of who you are. And as you develop, you're going to find different types of women will be attracted to you. So the more you get your shit together, the higher quality woman is going to find you attractive. So I think... Uh, this, this guy is on the right path. I think he's thinking about the right things. I think he's had a lot of fun. He'll always remember this woman. He'll always love her as he should, you know, why turn love off? I know it's painful, but come on, life is painful. And, and the pain of loving is about the best pain there is. So I'd say that's one we have to just take for the team, you know? Um, but yeah, I think you're smart to move on. I think you're smart to, uh, you know, let go of, let go of a relationship with a woman who's lying to you. Let her go out and and figure out that for her to get what she really wants, maybe she's got to stop lying. Um, okay. So let's see what's the next one here. I'm curious to know if ever in your study of human cultures that you've encountered a group that didn't have a spiritual aspect or sense of worship of a higher power. Uh, do you think that having a spiritual aspect is inherent to humans? I wonder why. Currently in our culture, there's such a resistance to spirituality that re- results in atheism being so strong. Huh. Makes me think that it's another aspect of civilization eroding what may be an essential aspect of what it is to be a human being. Yeah. Ben, Dublin, good question. Uh, I've never heard of a culture that didn't have some spiritual practice. I think there's a book, uh, I forget what it's called, but it's by Holmberg about um, the Sireno, Sireno, something like that in the in the Amazon. Uh, that was an example of an ethnographic study of a culture that seemed to have, if I remember correctly, no elaborate spiritual tradition and pretty, pretty rough um, social life. But also that was a culture that had been devastated by smallpox and, you know, murder and just all sorts of horrible colonial um, oppression. So it's hardly an example of um, sort of an indigenous culture existing on its own terms. Um, But other than that, I don't know of any. Now, again, I'm not the world's leading expert in, you know, all things anthropological, but no, I haven't come across anything like that. And I, and I do think that it's something, uh, endogenous to, to human beings and potentially not only human beings, their friends Duvall and others have written about behaviors in some primates and, and even elephants, I believe, uh, 
that seem to be, I don't know, if not worshipful, um, they seem to be ritualistic. Uh, there's almost a dancing thing that chimps do, the swaying thing that they do. Uh, they get together and sort of sway, and sometimes they've been observed just staring at the sunset. Um, there are also many examples of animals eating uh, hallucinogenic plants and uh, seeking them out. Elephants uh, love to get drunk on fermented fruit and then <laughs> rampage and fuck up everything. Uh, you don't want to be, you know, camping in an area where there are drunk elephants on the loose. Um, so, yeah, I think there are, you know, certainly mind altering to the extent that spirituality is a is a consciousness altering um, activity. I think that is endogenous to our species and quite likely to others. Barbara King is an anthropologist who wrote a book about um, grieving in animals. I think it's called Why Animals Grieve. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that it's a spiritual perspective and concern is probably a byproduct of consciousness. And, yeah, I do wonder about the atheism thing. I've talked about that a bit on the podcast before, and I certainly wrote about it in the manuscript for Civilized to Death uh, and, uh, I think there's a religious component to this sort of hardcore atheism that we see from people like Richard Dawkins, um, that is, uh, you know, it, it seems to be faith-based. It, it, there seems to be an absolutism, a certainty, as I've said in previous podcasts to that, that <clears throat> makes me think it, it's almost uh, a substitute religion as opposed to the absence of religion. Now, of course, I know people are going to say, wait a minute, religion is a specific, you know, ideology and set of teachings. And, you know, they believe in this old man in the sky and yada, yada, yada. Okay. But what we're talking about is a spirituality. Very few, if any, hunter-gatherer groups believe in any old man in the sky. They're, you know, they're whatever we're calling religion or animism or, uh, you know, pantheism uh, tends to be spirits that exist in nature. So there's the spirit of water, there's a spirit of wind, there's the spirit of the clouds, of the sky, of the earth, of the fire, and all these different things that imbue their world. So they see every aspect of the world as being alive with spirit and it does seem very strange and yet <clears throat> kind of inevitable that we see the world as being dead because that allows us to destroy it of course to rip it apart and to frack the shit out of it and to you know suck the oil out and dump it in the rivers and all the other Wonderful things that our species does in search of profit. Profit. God knows what we're going to do with the profit, but that's what we're. That's where we are. So yeah, I do think that uh, this spiritual thing is certainly human and probably uh, goes beyond human into other animals. Okay. Hi, Doctor Christopher Ryan. I need some advice. I'm currently sitting in my hotel room in an Eastern European city. I've been dating my boyfriend for a few years. 
And he recently proposed. Okay, there are details here that I should not probably reveal. Uh, he, repro- he proposed in a very um, romantic place. Uh, and okay, then she had some mushrooms and they hung out. And uh, she realized that he cheated on her a few weeks ago. So that would have been about a week before he proposed. Uh, This isn't the first time. It's actually the third time that she knows about. Uh, Again, it's kind of like the first letter, you know, I should have ended it, but there's this connection. Uh, You know, we just, we feel good together. She's in her early 30s. Um, Yeah. I know relationships take hard work and aren't easy. Not looking for an open relationship. Uh, I don't know if my mind will change, but at this point it's pretty clear. I want to be monogamous. So what do you think? I don't want anyone to be unhappy. Honesty is important. This makes me feel bad about myself. And um, I don't know what to do. Yeah. Again, I think the problem here is that it's, well, this is, this is so hard to talk about because, you know, I, I think that people look at love and they say, <clears throat> you know, I'm this age and okay, this isn't ideal, but this guy loves me and I love him and okay, he lied to me um, several times. Seems like he doesn't want the kind of relationship I want, but it's what's available. And I don't know if I'm going to do any better, so what should I do? And the problem is, I don't know if you're going to do any better either. Uh, And, you know, especially a woman in her early 30s, there's the whole biological clock issue. You want to have kids. She doesn't say in this if she wants to have kids or not, if that's an issue. But if she does, then she's probably, you know, looking and saying, I got, you know, so many years left. And uh, personally, I think settling is always a bad choice um, when it comes to something as intimate and determinative as your primary relationship. I think you get what you settle for. And um, I, I just think that anything that makes you feel diminished is the wrong way to go. I I think you want to, you know, it's like buying clothes for a teenager. You, you want to buy stuff a little big. You want to, you want to grow into things. You want a relationship that makes you feel like you've got to be your best self. You've got to stretch to, to keep up with this person that you admire so much. You don't want a relationship that makes you feel like you've got to constrict yourself. You've got to lie to yourself. You've got to accept things you don't want to accept. You've got to 
fight to fit into this thing that isn't quite made for you, but you're afraid of going naked anymore. Uh, I, I personally, that I think relationships, the best thing about relationships is that they offer you this incredible capacity to grow. And, you know, sometimes you grow together for a while and then one or both of you feels like the direction of your growth is elsewhere. And so you find a way to continue to love each other, but to move in different directions for a while or forever or who knows. But you got to follow the light that illuminates your path. And it doesn't sound to me like this is the light that's illuminating your path. It sounds to me like this is moving backwards for you. And um, I just feel like that's a real missed opportunity. And it's, it's a rut that you could be in for a long, long time. And if you... you there, there's, a, there's a trust that I think you have to have. And I've talked about this a lot on the podcast. You know, those birds I saw in some documentary that live in these cliffs... I think it's in Iceland and, you know, it's the cliffs are half a mile from the water and the, they're, they're water birds and, you know, the babies are born there and they have to, at some point, they have to jump out of this cliff nest that they're in, never having flown and they have to fly and they have to get over the beach because there are all these foxes and stuff on the beach waiting, you know, to eat the ones that don't make it to the water. But you got no choice. You got to go for it. And the more you hesitate, the weaker you get. And so there's a there's a magic in boldness. There's a you know, what's the that expression, the 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 universe helps the bold or something like that, right? It it's especially in, in emotional stuff, because the problem is you're trying to grow, you're at this age in your life where you're you're bursting. You've got all this energy. You've got all this opportunity. You're traveling around. You're taking mushrooms. You're seeing all this stuff. And here's this fucking incredible moment in your life. This guy's proposed to you. And then you find out he fucked somebody a week before and lied to you. You want to, is that what you want to remember the rest of your life? I don't think so. Now, I'm not saying he's a bad guy necessarily, but he's he lied to you about something pretty fucking important. And he didn't come clean before proposing to you, which is what I'm sorry, but that's what a fucking man would have done to let you know the truth of what you're getting into. You know, this is like someone who sells you a used car and doesn't mention that the transmission's fucked up. I mean, no. No, if if there's a problem with the car, you say it, you know, hey, here's this car. It's a good price. It's a good car, but there's this issue with the transmission. So maybe, you know, someone who works on transmissions, it's a good deal for you. Maybe you don't give a shit about the transmission, maybe whatever. You just want it for parts, whatever. It's your decision. I'm telling you the truth about what this is. This guy didn't tell you the truth. So 
That's a problem. And it's a bigger problem than just, you know, a lie that somebody has in a relationship that they just say, hey, I'm going to live with it. This, this was a week before he fucking proposed to you. Yeah, that doesn't smell right to me. So, uh, and I wouldn't want to live my life looking back and saying, oh, yeah, oh, so, oh, tell us the story of, you know, when you guys got engaged. Every time you tell that story, well, you probably won't tell the story. You don't want to tell the story. And every time there's a fight, every time he lies to you in the future, every time there's a problem, this is going to come up. It doesn't smell right. But I don't know. Let me know how it goes. Don't invite me to the wedding. All right. Who, who do we have here? Uh, we'll keep this short and sweet. Uh, I've been working in uh, D.C. for a few years, doing primarily financial administrative operational stuff, suit and tie every day. It's rather stifling, frankly, but I have a hefty student loan bill. Uh, da, 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 da. I'm 29 and I need sage advice. I really want to give this shit up and move to Hawaii where I've scouted a few organic farms that'll put me up. For indefinite time, I won't make any money, but I'll be sustainable. Is this the worst decision of my life or the best? Probably not an extreme on either end, ultimately, but I'd love your thoughts. Yeah. It's interesting. When when this email came in, uh, I was reading an article uh, about a boxer named Nicholas Walters who stunned the by the the headline is Nicholas Walters stuns boxing by committing the sport's ultimate sin quitting and uh so I read I'd never heard of Nicholas Walters but I thought it was interesting and I, I read this article and it was all about how boxers never quit that's that's the thing they you know and they they use the example of Muhammad Ali fighting Joe Frazier and how Frazier broke his jaw and I think it was the second round or something and Ali fought for another 13 rounds with a broken jaw and later the doctor said I have no idea how he continued in the incredible pain because it was a jagged break and he was bleeding in his mouth and every time he got hit it must have been just excruciatingly painful and you know, and the, so the articles, you know, all admiring of like these warriors, they never give up. But step back. Muhammad Ali got beat to shit because he never quit. Muhammad Ali would have had a much better last 20, 30 years of his life if he had known when to quit. Now, you might say, well, he wouldn't have been Muhammad Ali, right? He wouldn't have won an Olympic gold medal. He wouldn't have beat Sonny Liston. He wouldn't have, you know, we'd never heard of him if he was a guy who entertained the option of quitting at any point. And that may be true, but it's also true that, you know, never give up is the philosophy that casinos love their customers to have, right? Never give up. Always hold on to your hope that things are going to turn around. Well, sometimes that's a good idea and sometimes it's not. Sometimes giving up is the smart move because sometimes you're throwing good money after bad. Sometimes you're just digging deeper into a hole. Sometimes you're headed toward a precipice and you can see it coming. Fucking stop. Sometimes you got to stop. Sometimes you got to quit. Now, I don't know if that's the case here. You say you've got a big student loan debt. So if you quit, what's going to happen with that? I know you can 
get like a deferment for a while. So maybe that's an option. Uh, but the interest continues to accrue when you do that. And then if you default, your credit's going to be totally fucked. Uh, and if you need credit, then that's going to be an issue. The way the thing is in the U.S. right now, if you have a student loan and you default on it, they, they, it never goes away. You can't declare bankruptcy like you can if your business goes bad or whatever. Um, it never goes away. They'll, they'll take your fucking social security payments. It's incredible. It's incredible. And the interest rates are like 6% right now, 6.5% or something. Whereas you borrow money for, to buy a car, it's at 2.9%. Banks are charging less than 1% to one another, but they're ripping off the students that supposedly, oh, we're helping. It's just bullshit. This country is, is a fucking slave state. It's incredible. Um, so I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. Financially, you got to think that through. Uh, you know, are you willing to live the rest of your life with no credit? Do you have enough money saved up that if you need to buy something like a car, uh, that you can just pay cash for it? Uh, do you have access to family money, perhaps? Maybe you can pay off your, maybe your parents will pay off your student loan for you. I don't, I don't know. The financial thing, you got to think that through. Um, you know, there are, uh, there are ways around the student loan stuff, but it's complicated. Uh, you know, there's an income-sensitive repayment program now uh, that is, if you, if you get into that, then it's based on how much you make, that's what your payment is. So if you're not making any money, you don't need to default on the loan. You just need to prove you're not making any money. And then the payments go down to zero while you're not making any money. Then once you have taxable income again, the payments will kick into a percentage of what your taxable income is. So maybe that's the way to go. If you're not already on the income sensitive repayment plan, get on that right away. And then at the end of the tax year, uh, you know, when you have to recertify your income, then your payments will go down to nothing and then you can take off for a while. Um, you know, and if you're working for cash for the rest of your life or you're, you, you have your own business and then you pay yourself a, a low salary, then your income will be based on the salary that you pay yourself. So that's something to talk to an accountant about, a financial planner, figure that out. Um, but as far as, you know, doing financial administrative suit and tie shit every day, dude, <laughs> I couldn't do it. I could not do it. Um, yeah, I'd be living in a van down by the river before I do that. Uh, okay, here we go. Let's see. Uh, I'm seeking advice regarding something you may see as trivial and a non-issue. Uh, but it has been to the severe detriment of my mental health. I know it's something that's probably not a big deal, but I beat myself up over it nearly every waking hour. I fucked up my facial skin due to ignorance, and I can't get around the fact that even though I don't really know, I didn't really know what I was doing, the whole thing is my own fault. A few years ago, I started using a shaving cream that didn't agree with my skin. I broke out in painful acne. Um... And then I used the sunscreen and then I stopped doing that. And then I did this other thing and da, da, da. And anyway, so he's got clogged pores and uh, 
says, this is going to sound whiny, but please bear with me. It's a mental health issue for me at this point. I now have these nodules around my lips, mouth, and chin that only I can feel, that only I notice. But I feel them all the time. I press my tongue against them almost as a nervous twitch. They're not noticeable to anyone around me. A dermatologist told me they're likely permanent. My diet completely changed. Um, I don't know what's... My dating life has been put on the back burner uh, because I, I feel that I'm not... I can't deal with this stuff. My job is wonderful and everything else is pretty great, yet this the one thing eats away at me day and night. Um, yeah, okay. My feeling about this is that it's probably not about the the skin thing that you're freaking out about something else and so i would recommend trying to find a good therapist in the local area that you can talk to you say you have a good job i hope that means you've got a little disposable income that you could spend on something like this and just you know, and I'm not saying you're crazy, you know, although you, you do say it's a mental health issue at this point. So I think it's important to understand that therapy can be really helpful in so many things that, you know, you're, you're hesitant to say it's a big deal. But on the other hand, you're saying it's really fucking up your life. So just being able to talk to someone openly about this is going to relieve a lot of the pressure, first of all. Secondly, you might well find that there's something else going on in your life that's really bothering you, but that you don't really want to deal with. And so you're deflecting a lot of that self-critical energy into this thing. And your subconscious is distracting you from the real problem by making you focus on this so much. Um, you know, there's a Dr. John Sarno, who has written Mind Over Back Pain and a couple other books, he found that most of the cases of back pain that he treated, um, he's an orthopedic surgeon, I believe, uh, most of the cases of back pain that he's treated were psychogenic. In other words, once the person realized that there's something going that, that, you know, fuck, I want, I, I actually want a divorce or I hate this job. I, I, or, you know, my kid's sick and I'm not dealing with the, the reality of that. Or, you know, I haven't mourned the death of my mother or, you know, there's something like that going on, but it's expressed as back pain and th that like constant suffering from the physical pain distracts them from the emotional pain that is the real issue. And then once they turn and actually start facing the emotional pain, suddenly their back doesn't hurt anymore. So I think that we do that a lot in our lives unintentionally. It's just the way the, the mind-body continuum functions that a lot of times we suffer from physical ailments, whether real or imagined or a little of both, uh, that are really sort of bright, shiny objects that keep our attention away from the real issue. So I think talking to a therapist could be very helpful in that case. And uh, you might find, A, that it's not as big a deal as you think. Like you say, no one notices except you. 
And once you stop touching it with your tongue all the time and you stop obsessing about it because you're dealing with whatever the underlying issue is, even the nodules will go away. That's my prediction. But you have to let them go away. You have to sort of relax into that. Okay, here we go. Uh, My first question is, when is Civilized to Death actually going to be released? I don't know. Uh, Second question is, uh, certain people can't change. I'm describing rare people who are just evil. Uh, I came to a crossroads when trying to understand certain people, for example, ISIS. I'm sure if you sat down and talked to them, you could have an understanding of where they're coming from, what they really want. But that doesn't always seem to be true. Certain people just seem evil, like there is no good in them. Is that true? What are your thoughts? Uh, I've never met someone that I felt was truly evil. I've met people who were nasty pricks. I've met people who seem to take pleasure in causing discomfort to others, provocateurs, um, but in every case, uh, you know, when I knew those people well enough to have a sense of where they're coming from, I could see that they had been hurt very badly. So I don't think people are born evil. Um, I, I'm not an expert on psychopathology, uh, or psych psychopathy, um, so there may be a genetic component. There may be people who there appears to be a genetic component. In fact, from what I've read that some people are just born without the capacity to feel empathy so they can cause pain to others without knowing they're doing it. But that doesn't mean they're evil. That doesn't mean they want to hurt other people. It just means they don't really notice when they do. I think that we have a society that encourages cruelty uh, to other people. I talked in a previous episode about this law that was being considered in the UK. I don't know if it's been passed or or what's going on with that, but they, um, you know, wanted to uh, not allow certain acts to be depicted in porn that were violent or non-consensual. And yet nobody was talking about not depicting rape and murder and kidnapping and all sorts of things in, you know, mainstream movies. It just seems to be, you know, depicting those things within the context of sexuality is that's problematic, but depicting them just as entertainment isn't, I, I don't really see how that works, but that's obviously the premise. Uh, In any case, I I don't see how someone could be born evil. I don't think puppies, for example, are born wanting to bite and hurt people. I think, you know, we are social animals. We've been social animals for many thousands of generations. Those genes are very deeply cemented in the DNA of every one of us. So, um, yeah, there may be an, an occasional genetic uh, aberration where someone doesn't have that empathy capacity, but even they know that their survival depends upon their acceptance into the group. So even psychopaths learn how to get along, how to feign empathy and how to keep people happy. And, you know, a, a 
clinically diagnosed psychopath can be a very nice person. They don't necessarily uh, have to be cruel. In fact, they don't have a tendency to be cruel. They just have the, they sort of lack the self-correcting mechanism of empathy. Um, But if they're taught, if they're raised in a, in a family that teaches them uh, empathetic behavior, they'll be, they will behave in a way that suggests that they do feel empathy. So uh, as far as, you know, inborn evil, I don't believe it's there. I look at, you know, you talk about ISIS. Okay, I'm, I've never been to Syria. I didn't, you know, I've, I've never met anyone in ISIS. But, you know, I have met people who've been in groups that are called terrorist groups. And, you know, fuck, you, you know, the, the United States was founded by terrorists. As far as the British were concerned, the, you know, Benjamin fucking Franklin and George Washington and all those guys were terrorists. They were fighting against what they considered to be foreign oppression. And, you know, the British weren't flying fucking drones over the colonies and blowing up wedding parties. So, uh, you know, they were just pissed off about paying too much in taxes and they, they figured they could get a better deal if they kicked the British out. So they did. You know, the Middle East we've had uh, since World War II, it's been completely dominated by Europe and the United States. We've had military bases. We've been extracting their wealth. We've been, you know training their torture states we've been you know in in, we've in um in what's the word uh instilled no we've uh inserted dictators you know the shah of iran was a united states creation the saudi family that's been running that country with cruelty and barbarism for decades is a british u.s invention uh in the entire Middle East, you know, the the Israel is wouldn't exist without massive United States support, military support, you know, and what we don't sell them, they steal uh, through espionage from us, us being the U.S. military. Uh, you know, the entire context of the Middle East, which is uh, a place where young people have pretty much zero opportunity for advancement, where any sort of expression of disagreement with the government lands you in jail or being tortured or being killed. Um, you know, the United States created that environment and paid for it and trained the thugs who have been enforcing it for decades, for generations. So, yeah, you get these distorted, twisted, very, very angry, hateful ideologies that come out of that context. But I don't think that that's genetic, right? I don't think that someone's born wanting to blow people up or blow themselves up. I think that that's a response to injustice. And so uh, I think ultimately that people are um i mean there's a there's a beauty in the refusal to accept injustice and i think it's not a higher level philosophical thing i think it's very very deep in our in our dna because as again franz deval and and other primatologists have demonstrated the hunger the appetite for justice and the 
the disdain for injustice runs very deep. There's that famous experiment, uh, you know, Google it or, or on YouTube, look for just Franz Duvall, um, macaque, uh, cucumber, grape experiment. And you'll see there's this great experiment where, you know, they gave these, uh, I think it was macaques, um, they paid them every time they gave them the right colored chip, they gave them a slice of cucumber and okay, everybody's fine with that. But then they started giving one macaque a grape and the other one kept getting the cucumber. Now you were fine with that cucumber before, but now you're seeing this other guy's getting a grape for doing the same thing you're doing, giving him the right color chip. And suddenly it's like, fuck you. And the, the macaque throws the cucumber in the experimenter's face. Like, no, I want a grape. He's getting a grape. I want a grape. Justice, right? That goes way before the advent of Homo sapiens. So it goes, I mean, our last common ancestor with macaques was 20 million years ago. So that's deep. That's way, way back. So if the appetite for justice and the, and the anger in the face of injustice goes that far back, then I think that's the source of what we call terrorists. That's the source of what we call um, evil. Because we see it as evil because, yeah, it, it's, it's random. They're killing innocent people. They're blowing up bombs in Paris and people are dying who have nothing to do with any of this shit. But they look at it and they say, wait a minute, this is a war of societies. This is a war of civilizations. And your civilization has been fucking my civilization forever since the fucking crusades and you continue to arm this military state in the middle of the middle east you continue to train the torturers you continue to prop up this fucking saudi family you continue to use your wealth and your military power to keep us down and so fuck y'all right you're blowing up innocent people over here every fucking day so how come we can't go blow up some innocent people over there? How come we're terrorists and you're what? What are you, defending the world for freedom or something? It's all just words. So no, I don't believe in evil. Um, if I did, I'd be looking close to home as much as I'd be looking in the Middle East. Okay, uh, infidelity and making peace with a loved one. Da, da, da. I've been close with a woman for about two and a half years and I've been romantically involved for the last eight months. We met as adults, but now she's gone to study in another city. As a result of this, I've started to reconsider my plans to teach abroad in order to stay here with her. However, I now know she's been unfaithful with at least one other person. Uh, when I addressed this with her, She's assured me she's never been more interested in a relationship, and we've even discussed having children. I love her very much and don't want to break up with her, but she's lying to me. What are your thoughts on infidelity? Do you recommend working through this, or should I accept the trust has been damaged and walked away? I've lost weight, sleep, and my life has started to shift in a negative way. I can't stand to hold this information back anymore. <clears throat> I've never felt so old and so confused by a relationship. I know this may seem like a simple decision, but I'm truly at a loss. Yeah, uh, you don't say how old you are, <clears throat> but uh, you met at college and that was recently, so you're pretty young. I don't know. I mean, being unfaithful 
You don't say what the circumstances were, if it was a one-time thing, if she told you about it or you found out from someone else, if she felt bad about it or if she felt bad mainly that she got caught. Um, I don't know. If, if, uh, <clears throat> if you want a monogamous relationship and... I, I mean, it seems to me, assuming I'm right about the age, you're in your early 20s, <clears throat> it seems to me like it's very early to be talking about having kids. But because uh, that seals the deal, right? Once you have kids, that's a whole different ball game. But um, I don't know. I mean, I would, my feeling is like, I wouldn't take anything too seriously till you're 27, 28, somewhere in there. Then you can start thinking about it. But if you're 22, 23, which is the impression I'm getting here, I wouldn't change your plans. I'd go, go teach, go, go do what you wanted to do. Go see the world. Don't stick around because you met some girl that you like. That's, that's not a, that's not a way to live a life. If it's good, if, if it matters, if it's really, uh, an important relationship, you going and teaching overseas for a year, isn't going to change anything. And maybe what you need to do is like stop thinking about it in terms of being faithful, being unfaithful. Make an agreement. Stick to the agreement. If she sticks to the agreement, then you got something. If she doesn't, then either change the agreement or move on. But yeah, if you're in your early 20s and you're thinking about canceling a, a chance to go and live overseas for a while because you've fallen in love, I would say, nah, go live you'll fall in love again love's everywhere uh okay da, da, da. i'm 25 years old i live in canada my parents are conservative uh i'm serious oh okay here we go i remember this one i've been following climate change seriously for a few years now it terrifies me climate catastrophe mass extinction you know, okay, so-and-so, back to my question. My family, three sisters, their husbands, my parents want to fly to Portugal to spend a week there in February. My father's turning 60. Uh, while they're talking about the trip, I told them I wouldn't fly anywhere. The carbon produced wasn't worth it in my mind. We need strong action to avoid global catastrophe. Now they've booked the flight. There's pressure on me to go while there's still time. I know I'll be a grump if I do end up going. I hate frivolous spending already. I've never felt comfortable with it. Now I add to the flight, the pollution. I'm bummed out even more. My family says I may regret not going years down the line. It's a possibility. Uh, five years ago, we went to the Bahamas. I didn't have much fun. Seeing the wealth being passed around bothered me. My sisters say we can offset our carbon footprint in other ways, plant some trees or reduce waste. I find that to be mostly bullshit. Some part of me hopes that making this decision could inspire others to do the same. I hate saying this, that because I have a large ego, wait, I hate saying that because having a large ego tends to be a dick aspect for a person. Just think for me morally, I can't go through with this because it's against what I believe. Am I wrong in my thinking? Please let me know your thoughts. <laughs> well, how old, how old is this guy? 25. Yeah, you're not wrong in your thoughts. But this is the problem. This is the conundrum, right? Uh, you're not wrong in your thoughts. 
I agree with you. But I fly. I fly quite a bit, actually. Um, and I drive. And I eat meat. And uh, I do other shit that contributes to this. And, and I kind of feel that it's admirable um, <clears throat> to try to align your behavior with your beliefs. But I think the problem is systemic. And I think it's uh, on a civilizational level. And I really don't think that we are going to get ourselves out of the mess we're in by being vegetarians or recycling or not flying as much or whatever. Because other people are going to fly. Uh, planes are going to fly whether you're on them or not. And I don't, maybe I'm wrong, but I don't see any evidence that our species is able to stop um, before we hit the wall. Even when we see the wall coming, we just hit it. And then we figure out what to do afterwards. Um, so, I don't think that you not going on this trip is going to save the world. I think it's purely you, your, your psychology. And honestly, you know, I think your relationship with your family is more important. Uh, I think that your dad's getting old and he probably would love to have you there if you're not going to be a miserable grump the whole time. And, uh, and, you know, maybe they'll appreciate your, uh, your, your, what's the word, your, the purity of your principles and all that. But, uh, I don't know, man, I feel like the ship is sinking and, and, you know, what you're doing is trying to, uh, you know, you're throwing your luggage overboard to take some weight off the ship, but. Uh, ship sinking anyway, brother. So I would say go on the trip, be with your family. They know how you feel and maybe they'll appreciate your presence even more knowing that you are coming purely because you love them and you value your relationship with them and, uh, and that it pains you to do it, but don't make a big deal of it be a gentleman and uh you know and maybe you'll have a conversation on that trip that'll be enlightening for them and uh and that'll help them but uh i don't know i would go on the trip i would uh i would try to temper your your passion a little bit um and look for a way to spend your life. I don't know what you do for a living. I don't know what you're studying. But if you orient your life in a way that's in alignment with with your beliefs and with what you're passionate about, you can allow yourself a little cheat day every once in a while. You know, um, I find that that tends to work better, at least for me, and I think for most people. You know, you do eighty percent of the time. You do what you 
you know, intend to do and you follow your principles, but give yourself a break every once in a while, you know, give yourself exceptions so that you can not only have more fun and maintain relationships with people who aren't as uh, pure as you are in that sense, but also so that you don't drift into becoming um, too rigid and that you don't lose friends because you're no fun to be around. Because let's face it, being aware of what's happening in the world right now is painful. It's a bummer. And uh, I'm with you. I, I feel it too. But I think we have to laugh and dance even though we know we're on a sinking ship. I really think that's the only halfway rational response to this situation. So I hope you go. I hope you wish your father a happy birthday because who knows how long he's going to be around. Who knows how long, you know, how many of those trips you're going to be able to take. You're young and um, I think you might regret it if you don't go. But it's your call, buddy. Have fun either way. If you don't go, do something wild and crazy when the family's all in Portugal and you're sitting at home. All right. I'm going to end it there. It's been over an hour. That's enough. I'm tired of hearing myself talk. Thanks for listening to this. I will be back with you soon with a a normal episode of Tangentially Speaking. Uh, I've got some interesting stuff cooking up. Looks like Neil Strauss and I might be doing a, a series maybe an ongoing series of podcasts. We've talked about it the other night. We're sort of talking about what that might look like. He's a fun guy. And he and I are so different that we have an interesting dynamic together. So we'll see. I'll try that. Uh, Thanks for listening. Thanks for all your support, whether it's through patreon.com or by using my Amazon affiliate at uh, thatchrisryan.com. Thanks. Hope you're all well. I'll get back to you with more of these in a couple of weeks. Ciao from Topanga. I will leave you, as always, with the amazing, wonderful, beautiful, talented Carsey Blanton singing Smoke Alarm in a special acoustic version she recorded just for you. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you wanna say You're gonna die one day For example, I could kiss you Just because I want to What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day Why do you waste your time Thinking about your reputation Trying to meet an expectation Wondering what they're gonna say When everyone you've ever known Is headed for a headstone I don't wanna give the end away But we're gonna die one day Your body is an animal Doesn't ask for much A little music and a soft touch Why don't you let it out to play? Your heart is in a birdcage Singing in your chest You wanna shut it up but give it a rest You're gonna die one day Why do we waste our 
if you wanna be free, say what you wanna feel. Spend the night with me. I'm gonna take you up in my arms, and if we must go down, we'll go singing to the smoke alarms. We'll dance into the ground.